All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles now. If you have your copy, I'd encourage you to take it out. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have a copy, there should be one on the pew in front of you that you can use. Uh, We are going to be looking and looking and looking back and looking back at the text today. So I think you'll benefit most by looking at it with me in your own copy. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 8 here in just a moment. Now, the Word of God, the Bible, does so many things for us. We benefit in so many different ways from the Bible. One particular way is that it provides us with a lens by which we can accurately understand the world around us. The Bible provides us with a lens by which we can accurately understand the world around us. In today's world, it seems like every time we turn on the television or every time we fire up social media, there's another person telling us that they have the answers, right? They're telling us this is how we should understand the world. They're explaining the world to us by their wisdom. And the problem is so many voices and a lot of them flat out contradict one another. But in God's word... We have an anchor, as it says in the book of Hebrews, a sure and steady anchor for the soul. And it is because of this solid ground, this solid ground, that we can look into the world and interpret what we see and understand it rightly and have confidence that we're understanding it rightly. Now, as we've come through the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically in chapter 12, Paul started talking about spiritual gifts, right? And in chapter 12, we see two times where he lists some spiritual gifts. But some of those gifts that we have seen, that Paul has mentioned, might sound a little bit different to you. Look back at chapter 12 real quick with me, verses 9 and 10. You'll see gifts of healing mentioned there. You'll see miracle-working powers mentioned there. Prophecy, tongues. And then on down to verse 28, chapter 12, verse 28, he talks about prophecy, miracles, healing, and tongues. Now, what are we to make of these? Do these gifts still exist today? Now, there is no doubt that you can find the appearance of these gifts today. There's no doubt that you can find people who will gain a following because they claim to have some of these gifts today. And there's no doubt you can find people with stories of having experienced them or witnessed them. But the question is, are they genuine? Are these experiences being interpreted rightly? Let's read our text. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 8. God's word through the Apostle Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now let me make just a few initial comments before we get into the details of the text today. 
just to lay my cards out on the table, I'm making a case today from the text that miraculous gifts have ceased. That miraculous gifts have ceased. That they're no longer given to people like they were in the times of the New Testament. Now, having said that, there are sincere, evangelical, conservative Christians who disagree with me on this, okay? Sincere, evangelical, conservative believers that disagree with me on this. You do not have to agree with me on this to be a member of this church. We said that a few weeks ago, right? You don't have to agree with me on this to be a member of this church. This is not one of those first-order issues. Some issues, if you disagree on them, we, we cannot in good conscience call you a Christian, right? If you didn't believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, if you didn't believe in the literal resurrection, if you didn't believe Jesus was coming again, if you didn't believe Jesus was the only way to God, right? Those would be things that are first-order issues. We can't disagree on those. Right? There's just no option there. There's no wiggle room there. This, thankfully, is not one of those first-order issues. But having said this, and as I make this case, I am not saying that God no longer does miracles today. Right? We fully believe that God does miracles today. What we're saying is just that He no longer gives miracle-working powers to individuals. And it remains those, those miracle-working powers remain on individuals like they did on, say, Paul or Peter or somebody like Moses or Elijah in the Old Testament, right? That's what we're saying. We're not saying God no longer does miracles. We're not putting God in a box. God can do whatever He wants, right? We're not trying to say what God can or cannot do, right? What we're doing is we're looking at the text, and we're trying to see what God has told us about what He does or does not do, right? We're trying to understand that rightly with as much humility as we can have. Now, the context of this text right here, verses 8 through 13, the context of this text, remember, is chapter 13 as a whole, and the idea in chapter 13 is that love is supreme over and above every spiritual gift. Love is more important than every spiritual gift. The Corinthians in that church in that day were making spiritual gifts a source of pride and division. And so one of the ways that Paul combats that and tries to correct them is by teaching them that these gifts that they were being prideful about were eventually going to cease. They were eventually going to stop. But love, love never stops. Paul's argument here can really be seen when you look at the beginning of verse 8 and then skip all the way down to verse 13. Let me read it like that, just to show you what I mean in Paul's structure of this text. In the beginning of verse 8, he says, Love never ends. But then go down to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now that right there is his argument. Everything in between is like a parenthetical support for that argument. It's in parentheses, right? Everything in between is support for that. The beginning of verse 8 and and verse 13, that's the key. Everything in between is support for it. That's what we're going to be looking at today that support, that argument in between. Specifically, what Paul does in those verses in between is he gives us three contrasting pairs. Three contrasting pairs that I want to draw your attention to. The first starts in verse 8, where Paul contrasts the temporary versus the eternal. The temporary versus the eternal. Now, many today, when you speak of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit will say something like, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says these kinds of things have stopped. So why should we believe they're not around today? 
But I think verse 8 specifically says it. I I think verse 8 explicitly does say that these things have ceased. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, some will argue that Paul here is not saying these gifts have ceased now, but that they will cease when eternity begins. I'll show you in a moment why I don't believe that's what he's saying. But for now, what we can see here is that here in verse 8, he's contrasting love which never ends with gifts like prophecy, tongues, or miraculous knowledge, which are temporary. Love is eternal. These things are temporary. These things will cease, he says. Now, I'll get to the question of when they will cease in a moment. But for now, focus on the fact these things will cease. Love will never, ever cease. We will never stop loving one another. We'll never get past the command to love one another. Whatever spiritual gifts you have, whatever spiritual gifts you do not have, that stuff's important, that stuff's in Scripture. You know what's more important than all that? Loving one another. Giving of yourself for others. Giving of yourself for your brothers and sisters in Christ. More important than all the gifts in the world. The spiritual gifts. Now, for a moment, I want us to concentrate and spend just a little bit of time on the prevalence of miracles in Scripture. How frequently do we actually see miracles in the Bible? Now, we should not assume that today things are just going to be the same as they were in the times of the New Testament. Things are going to be just like they were today. They're going to be just like they were in Bible times. We should not assume that. We don't really have any reason to believe that. In fact, we've got lots of reasons to believe that today is different than the times of the Bible, especially the times of the New Testament. First of all, the time surrounding the first coming of Jesus was unprecedented in history. Unprecedented. Before or after. There's never been anything like it. There never will be anything like it again. All other periods of time in history are different than the period of time when Jesus walked this earth. And so right then and there, you've got a concrete reason to at least acknowledge there's a possibility things aren't today like they were then, right? We should expect that time period to be different and special because Jesus was walking the earth. Everything in history points back to that. Everything that happened before that pointed up toward it. Everything. History hinges on that time period right there. It's special. We should expect things to be different during that point. Now, second, the apostles. Let's think about them for a second. The apostles are in a category all their own. The 12 apostles, right? These are men that were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They saw him in the flesh. Jesus commissioned them individually, personally, in person. He commissioned them. And one of the things we know from that is that the office of apostle ceased to exist after those 12 men ceased to exist. There are no more apostles. Apostles are eyewitnesses of Jesus. Apostles were commissioned directly by Jesus. Every now and then today, you'll see some guy on TV, some guy in a church say he's an apostle, right? I think we've got our terminology really mixed up there. The office of apostle is reserved for those men who are eyewitnesses of Jesus, who spent time with him. And Paul is the only one who's a little bit different. Jesus appeared to Paul miraculously on the road to Damascus and commissioned him in that way. The other 11 spent time with him, were eyewitnesses of his ministry and his life. 
So the apostles are in a category all their own, and if we can agree on nothing else, at least we should be able to agree that the office of apostle has ceased today. If that one has ceased, perhaps there are other things that have already ceased. Furthermore, there were clearly times in Scripture where God changed the way He interacted with people on earth. There are clearly times when you read the Bible where God changed the way that He interacted with people versus a time previously. So it it remains to be seen that He could do the same in our day versus the day of the New Testament. Consider this. For 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was silence from God. God did not give His people any word from any prophet for 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament until we come to John the Baptist. Before that, it was silence for so long. When Jesus came, it marked a definitive change in the way God related to His people in so many ways, right? God changed the way He related to His people when Jesus came. The ceremonial law was was fulfilled. The old covenant was replaced with the new. There's no more sacrifices, no more temples, no more cleanliness laws. God changed the way He interacted with His people at times. And if you pay attention as you read your Bible, you will not find miracles happening all over the place. A lot of people think that. A lot of people pick up their Bibles and they read the Gospels and turn back over to read Exodus or something like that, and they say miracles are happening all over the place in Bible times. Not really. Not when you really pay attention to the years that go by and the timeline of Scripture. What you will find as you read your Bible is you will find miracles concentrated around three distinct time periods. The times of Moses and Joshua, the times of Elijah and Elisha, and the times of Jesus and the apostles. Outside of those three time periods, miracles are very rare in Scripture when you pay attention to it. Coincidentally, all three of those time periods are around 65 to 70 years. The times of Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. Outside of those three times, miracles in Scripture are very rare. Miracle-working powers given to individuals are even rarer. So, we've got plenty of evidence in the Bible for God periodically changing the way He relates to His people, the way He communicates this, all of, communicates with us. All of this to say, it's not wise to just assume that today should be just like the times of the New Testament. It's not wise to assume that. There's all kinds of reasons not to believe that. And so when Paul here is contrasting the temporary versus the eternal, I want you to have a category in your mind for God changing the way that he relates to his people at times and for something having already ceased, already been temporary and is not in operation anymore because next we come up to the the second pair that Paul contrasts in verses 9 and 10, the partial versus the complete. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, Paul says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, when the perfect comes, then the partial will pass away. Now what's that perfect that it's talking about there? Well, the NIV here, the New International Version translation, says instead of when the perfect comes, it says when completeness comes, the partial will pass away. I actually think that's a better translation. Here's why. The Greek word here behind perfect or completeness in the NIV, the Greek word is teleon. Teleon, 
Okay? Now, you don't need to know any Greek today, but here's what you do need to know. That word teleon can be translated as mature or complete or perfect or of the highest standard, depending on the context. Right? That word can be translated perfect, mature, complete, or of the highest standard, depending on the context. Our Bibles were not written in English. Okay? The, the apostles, the people who wrote the New Testament scriptures, wrote them in Greek, in Koine Greek. And so we translate from those original languages to our language, just as if we were living in another country, we would translate it from Greek into another language. All right? So this Greek word teleon makes all the difference in how we translate it, and context is key here. And the context is absolutely crucial, because here we see what is contrasted with teleon is the partial You see that in verse 10? When the teleon comes, the partial will pass away. Well, if he's contrasting those two, what's the opposite of partial? I think a better word than perfect is complete. When the complete comes, the partial will pass away. The reason I make this point is because I'm making the case that what Paul is saying here is that gifts of partial revelation, like miracles or healing or prophecy or tongues, will pass away when the more clear revelation of the New Testament is completed. I think what Paul is saying here is that gifts of partial revelation will pass away when the more clear revelation of the New Testament scriptures is completed. And that's what we find, not only when we read the New Testament, but what you will also find when you read church history, is that when the New Testament was finally done, when the canon of the New Testament was finally closed, these miraculous gifts started dying off. You see, these miraculous gifts, they existed to communicate revelation from God. It's what God was doing with them. He's communicating revelation from Himself. He's revealing Himself and His will and His plan of salvation to people. But there's only so much that can be communicated through miracles or tongues or even prophecy. There's only so much you can get from those things. God always had a plan to reveal himself in a more clear and more full way. A way that would be available to so many more people than simply those who were there to experience the miracles firsthand. And that revelation is the Bible. Once that revelation was completed, the miraculous gifts that only partially revealed God and his will and his plan, they started to die off. Now the full, complete revelation has come. These miraculous or charismatic gifts served their purpose for a time. Once that purpose was complete, they ceased. It's like scaffolding on a building. You ever see a building being built and it's in the process and there's scaffolding, scaffolding placed on, on the sides of it to help the builders as they build the buildings, right? And that building goes up little by little, day by day, month by month. And hopefully at one point it it gets finished all the way. And then what happens when the building is completely finished? What happens to the scaffolding? It's taken down. It's done away with, right? It's served its purpose and now it is no longer needed. The same is true of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. They served their purpose. But once their purpose was completed, they were no longer needed and they were set aside. Now, I want you to notice, we looked at the prevalence of miracles earlier. How frequently do we see miracles in the Bible? But we also need to see the purpose of miracles in the Bible. Because that is set in Scripture very clearly, but it's something that people often miss. What is the purpose of miracles in the Bible? Now, over and over again throughout the Bible, 
we see that the purpose of miracle-working powers given to individuals was to authenticate someone as a genuine messenger of God. The reason God gave miracle-working powers to individuals was so that he could authenticate them in the eyes of people as being a genuine messenger from God. It was to establish their credibility in the eyes of the people. Because how were people to know the difference between, let's say, Paul coming to them and Paul saying, I have the very words of God. I'm speaking to you as a messenger from God. But then here's this man over here false prophet, saying the same thing. I have the very words from God. Take my words as the words of God. And they they say things that are contradicting one another. How, How am I to know which one is actually from God and which one is not? God gave Holy Spirit power to Paul that he did not give to those others to authenticate him in the eyes of the people as a genuine messenger of God. And we're not talking here about someone teaching or preaching like what I'm doing now, right? What authenticity? my words. It's it's the word, right? You go home and you you look at the Bible and you say, is what that preacher's saying actually in the Bible? See, because God's already given us his revelation. We can all go home and see this. All I'm doing is standing up here pointing you to what God says so that we can all worship over it, right? We can all understand it and apply it to our lives. But that's that's not the same as Paul or Peter saying, these words that I'm writing to you and giving you, They are the very words of God. They are God's very words, God's inspired words. That's totally different, right? You ever hear a preacher start saying that, you run the other direction. You go find another church, right? That's not what I'm doing. This is different. We're talking about those who claim that they had received a message directly from God and they were relaying it to the people word for word. Think about Moses in the burning bush incident. You remember this? Moses encounters God at the burning bush. God says through that burning bush to Moses, Moses, you're my guy. I want you to take my words to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. Let my people go into the wilderness and worship me there. And Pharaoh will tell you no, but I want you to go take my words to him. Moses gives all these excuses, right? He says, well, God, I've got, I've got this speech impediment. God says, who made man's mouth? And then God relents a little and says, I'll give you Aaron to help you. And then Moses says, but what if they ask your name. What if they say, well, we, we don't even know this God. What's his name? God says, you tell them my name. My name is I am who I am. You tell them I am has sent you, Exodus 3. And then Moses says, yeah, but what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe that I'm a genuine messenger from you? What does God say to him then? He says, I'll give you two signs. You perform these signs in their midst and they will know. You take your staff, remember this? Take your staff, drop it on the ground. What happens? It becomes a snake. And you grab the tip of that snake, and it becomes a staff in your hand once again. And if they don't believe the first miracle, Moses, I'll give you a second. You take your hand in front of them all, and you put it into your cloak. You take it back out, and it will be leprous, as white as snow. And they will all recoil from you. And then you take that leprous hand, put it back into your cloak, take it back out, and immediately it will be restored. And in that way, Moses... I will show them that you have been sent by me. Now their hearts will be hard. They will not accept your words, but they will know that you have been sent by the Lord of all the earth. We see the same thing in Jesus' ministry. Jesus himself would say that what he was doing when he was doing miracles was showing people that God sent him. John 5, 36. 
Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, John the Baptist, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You see that? Jesus says, The works I'm doing, they are what show you that God has actually sent me, that I am actually from God. Nicodemus, when Nicodemus was talking to Jesus at that nighttime conversation, Nicodemus told him, We know, even the Pharisees who say they don't believe in you or anything like that, we know that no one could do these signs that you're doing if he did not come from God, right? They authenticated Jesus as a genuine messenger of God in the eyes of the people. Peter said the same thing about Jesus. Acts 2.22, during his Pentecost sermon, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And he goes on. You see, Peter says, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Some of you know this guy, but he's a man attested to you by God. God attested him to you. How? How did he do it? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. You see, Jesus did not come primarily to do miracles. He did them, but that's not primarily why he came. The miracles served a greater purpose. Jesus came to save people from sin. The miracles served that purpose. The miracles were secondary. The miracles were to support that. Miracles are often called signs in the Bible, right? Call them signs? Why does it call them signs? Well, signs point to something else, right? Miracles are something that's pointing to something else. The point is not the miracle. The point is what it's pointing to. Miracles are signs pointing to something else. And so miracles and miracle-working powers given to individuals serve their purpose. In a time when God was sending men to give new revelation of himself, there had to be a way for people to know if these men were genuinely from God or inspired by God. Now that we have God's words recorded for us in the New Testament, those powers authenticating God's messengers are no longer needed. They were partial. The revelation of the New Testament is complete. The partial versus the complete. Now, one final comparison that Paul gives comes in verse 12. It's an illustration he uses where he compares the dim mirror versus face-to-face. Now, in verse 11, he makes an illustration that we can all kind of get In verse 11, he's talking about when he was a child, he did childish things. But when he grew up, those things kind of went away. He stopped doing childish things. He left those behind, right? That's an illustration he's using to prove the point that there are times where certain things are left behind. But in verse 12, he gives another illustration. Verse 12 is an illustration to illustrate his main point. And what he says is, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, Many people read this and conclude that Paul must be talking about when we see Jesus face to face in eternity. That must be what Paul is saying here. He must be talking about when we're going to see Jesus in eternity face to face. He does say, for instance, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. One day we will see Jesus face to face. Is that what he's talking about? Because if that's what he's talking about, then the gifts gifts don't cease now. They cease then, when Jesus returns, right? But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Notice the contrast Paul is making. He's using an illustration of a mirror to make his point. And he's comparing 
trying to see your face in a dim, old, oxidized mirror. Think about that. Think about trying to look at your face in a dim, oxidized mirror, right? You can, it's kind of blurry. You can see some form of something, but you can't really make out any details. And then imagine you take away that old, dim, oxidized mirror and you replace it with someone's face right in front of you. What's the difference? It's clarity, right? The difference in clarity is obvious. Seeing in a dim, oxidized mirror versus seeing someone's face right in front of you. When, when Paul says face to face here, I don't think he's talking about when we will see Jesus face to face. I think all he's saying is the difference between looking at yourself in a dim old mirror and looking at someone else's face right in front of you. The difference is stark. The contrast is obvious, right? One of those images is blurry and unclear. The other is crystal clear, HD. And so face to face is not referring to our vision of Jesus in the end. It's simply an illustration meant to contrast what it's like trying to see your face in an old dim mirror versus someone else's face right in front of yours. One principle that we all need to remember as we read the Old Testament or the read the, the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, is Paul was writing here to a, a specific people at a specific time. He's writing to the Corinthians. So look at verse 12. When he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Don't forget that that was written to Corinthians in the first century. It was written to those people, right? So when he says now and then, you can't automatically just apply that to yourself and say, oh, well, well, now means now, and then means the future for us. Brothers and sisters, we live 2,000 years removed from when he wrote this, right? And so what he's saying now and then could be, Both of them passed for us as readers in the 21st century. We have to understand that as we read the Bible. Because most people's uh, default is to read that and to immediately bring that verse into the 21st century and apply it here and now and say, for now we see in a mirror, then face to face. So then must mean future for me, now must mean now for me. Not necessarily, brothers and sisters. Not necessarily. Let's put on our our thinking caps as we read Scripture and use the literary lessons we've learned in grade school growing up. Think about Moses in the Old Testament. This is one of the the tip-offs that we get, that this face-to-face language is not necessarily talking about Jesus face-to-face in eternity. In the Old Testament, God would often speak to Moses in a way that he did not speak to anyone else. He spoke with Moses, Exodus says, and Deuteronomy says, he spoke with Moses face-to-face. Didn't speak with anybody else like that. In Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 6, we read this. God says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That gives us a tip-off here. Paul has that in mind, I think, as he's writing. He's using this mirror versus face-to-face illustration to teach us about the difference between God's revelation through miraculous gifts, like miracles, tongues, and prophecy, versus his revelation through the New Testament scriptures. Scripture. Something of God and the gospel could be communicated through those miraculous gifts. Something. Right? But it was unclear. It was blurry. It was partial. But the New Testament is a crystal clear way for God to reveal himself and his plan of salvation to us. 
It'd be like, like another illustration that I could use. Paul, of course, couldn't use this one, but I can. When I take off my glasses and I look out into you guys, all I see is a blur of color. That's all I, I have really bad vision, right? There's, these things are thick if you look at it. All I see is a blur of color. You could all make faces at me right now, like goofy faces making fun of me. I would have no idea. All I can see is a blur of color and kind of forms of people, right? It's like the man that Jesus healed in the scriptures, but it was like a two-stage healing. And remember the first time the man opened his eyes after Jesus spat on his, on his, on, in the mud and rubbed it on his eyes? He said, I, I, see, I see men like trees walking around, but it's just forms. That's the way I see right now, right? But if I was to go down to Downey Eye Clinic this week and have an appointment with Jacob or Sarah, and they give me a, an exam and get my prescription exactly accurate, and they give me new lenses, all of a sudden I put those things on, everything becomes crystal clear. Everything becomes defined. All of a sudden I can tell when y'all are making fun of me. Right? So it's, it's like that. The difference between me without my glasses and me with my glasses. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. So all of this points to, I believe, Paul making the case that these miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased ever since the canon of the New Testament was closed and God's revelation, His more clear, more definitive revelation, was available to any who had access to it, to all who could read it, to all who could understand it. But the question for us today then is this. What will you do with God's Word? What will you do with God's Word? Are you waiting for God to do a miracle in your life for you to start following Jesus? Are you waiting for God to do something miraculous in your life for you to actually get serious about pursuing Christ and pursuing holiness? Are you waiting, as many are, for God to speak a special message in your ear that's unique only to you? Are you waiting for that before you follow Because God is not looking for those who will follow miraculous signs. God is not looking for those who will follow miraculous signs. You can gain a pretty big crowd if you've got a bunch of miraculous signs going on. We see that in the New Testament, right? The crowds follow Jesus. But what happens when persecution comes? What happens when it gets hard? What happens when he's not popular anymore? The crowds thin out. Only those who are committed remain. God is not looking for those who will follow miraculous signs. He's looking for those who will take him at his word. He's looking for those who will believe what he says. Remember Thomas at the end of the book of John who said, I won't believe Jesus is risen from the dead unless I can actually put my hands on his scars and in his side. Well, Jesus shows up. Jesus gives him the evidence. But then Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, you've believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God is looking for those who will take Him at His word. And what does His word say? It says Christ died for your sins. The word tells us He was buried. He was raised from the dead three days later. The word tells us 40 days later He ascended up into heaven and ever since then He has been at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for His children, for God's children. The word tells us not everyone is God's children. Not everyone in the world is God's child. Only those who have come to Him through Christ, who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. 
And now we await His return. The world tells us Jesus is coming again. The Word tells us that. He is coming again. And His second coming, the Word tells us, will not be like His first. His first was humble. His glory was veiled. In His second coming, every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And many will wail at the sight of Him. There are those who will rejoice. Are you among that number that will rejoice when Jesus returns? Because it says there are many who will wail at the sight of Him because they know there's no second chance anymore. It's over. Jesus comes not only to rescue all who trust in Him, but He comes also to defeat definitively all the enemies of God. And brothers and sisters, the Word tells us, and those who are not brothers and sisters, the Word tells us that anyone who has not come to God through faith in Christ, anyone who has not committed their lives to Jesus, remains an enemy of God. If there is one being in the whole universe that you don't want to be on the wrong side of, it's God. Who spoke everything into existence out of nothing and could absolutely end us with a word, with a thought. This is the God whose enemies will be defeated and destroyed and sent to eternal punishment when Jesus returns a second time. This verse right here at the front of this pulpit says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What will you do with God's Word today? Believing God's Word doesn't just mean listening to it in church. It doesn't mean giving lip service to how Jesus is a nice guy, to how you're pro-Jesus. It means you give your whole life to it. You don't believe God's Word unless it changes how you live. This is a good time for us to stop and to pray. During this time of prayer each week, we ask every person, every individual in here, to respond to God's Word, to what He has put on your heart, to take this time to pray to Him, to take this time to go to Him, and to take this time to speak to Him, and to reckon with Him, and to respond to the way the Holy Spirit has laid His Word upon your heart. After we have a few moments of silent prayer, individual response will come back. We'll have a time where people can respond publicly if they need to do that. So let's pray.